Okay, well, good to be back preaching again through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, This is actually going to be the last one in Luke for a little while. I think when John gets back, uh, he'll be doing a series through the book of Lamentations. Um, So I know we've been going through Luke for a while, and we will be obviously coming back to it, but we'll have a a break for a bit. Um, Certainly an odd odd feeling preaching through and preparing to preach through this passage. Uh, especially after the excitement of last week. Like, I reckon Phil got to have a really, really good passage. Oh, I've, got, I've got a good passage too, but Phil got to have a really good passage. Um, there, there was lots of excitement in it, and then the, the start of this passage says, the next day. So we know that this follows directly on from what just happened. But I feel like they couldn't be more opposite. Uh, it was such an, an exciting passage last week. You've got you know, amazing events, great faith proclaimed, the disciples are going to go from strength to strength after that, right? They're, they're going to go out with boldness. Nothing could go wrong, right? Maybe not. It's a pretty big contrast we see. Like we, we see the miracle of the transfiguration, and this week we get to see a failed healing. You know, They try and cast out a demon and, and nothing happens. And then, then we see an amazing profession of faith by, by Peter. He recognises, you are the Christ of God. And then all of a sudden we see a lack of faith, a lack of understanding. When, when Jesus says that he's going to go to the cross, they, they don't get it. They don't understand the concept of a, a suffering servant. They don't understand their own need for humility. Uh, they, yeah, they, so let, let's pray. Let's pray that God would give us understanding. Lord, we acknowledge Lord, that your spirit needs to work in us. Lord, we, we are just like the disciples, lacking understanding, lacking humility. Lord, grant us understanding by your spirit. Help us to understand what you came to do through the Messiah, in the cross, Lord, and in your resurrection. Grant us understanding. Amen. Well, first we see uh, a failed healing. So let's uh, just quickly look at that first section. So this is uh, Luke 9, starting from verse 37. It says, On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. So so this is a bit of an odd healing. It uses the word healing. Uh, but then the question arises: Is is it purely a disease, or is it demon? Is it just demon possession and nothing more? Uh, you know, or oppression by some kind of demonic activity? But um, or is it a combination of both? Is it a, is it a physical healing that happens, or a spiritual healing? I would say both. I, I think uh, looking at the different gospels, this one here, um, you know, we see Jesus casting out the demon, uh, but in in Matthew's gospel. Uh, he refers to it, uh, he describes the boy as being epileptic. So there is a connection in this case um, that the demonic 
influence or the demonic activity influences this boy's physical health. So I think it is a healing of, of both the spiritual and the physical, but uh, I just want to throw it out there that we need to be careful uh, combining those two things together, always associating sickness with demonic influence. Uh, basically, if someone's sick, don't go and tell them that the reason is probably demonic or that they've sinned or something like that. You know, They shouldn't need saying, but it does happen within the church. Uh, but in this case, yes, there was physical healing required, but to the far, it was obvious to the Father, to the disciples, to Jesus, um, that there was a spiritual cause behind it. But the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And then Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. But who is he, who is he talking to here? Who's, who is he rebuking? The, the disciples or the Father for his lack of faith? Probably not the young boy. You know, or is he speaking more broadly? Well, I, I think he's referring to all of them. He, he speaks in very broad language. Um, you know, the father points out that the disciples couldn't hear the boy and then he rebukes their whole generation. You know, so there's probably a whole bunch of onlookers as well you know, just gathered around to see the spectacle of what was going on. But they were all at fault and, and unbelief was the problem. And, and even after Jesus healed the boy... It doesn't say the crowd believed. It, it just says they, they marveled. They were amazed at what they saw. But that, that was it. That's not the same thing, being amazed at what they saw as believing and trusting in Jesus and recognising who he is and putting their faith in him. So for both the crowd and even the disciples, part of their lack of faith was their, their lack of understanding as to who Jesus really is. And, and I know... Uh, yeah, I've been hammering this point a bit and I feel likes to as well that the, the word faith has so many negative connotations and so many misunderstandings uh, in, in our culture. But, but faith is just trust. That The more we trust in someone, that we're having faith in them. And so it's not something that's set apart from knowledge or evidence. It actually goes along perfectly with it. That The more we know someone, the more we understand who they are, the more we see their trustworthiness, the more we can put our faith in them. And so that was the disciples' problem. They didn't understand the power of Jesus. Even though they've just, or a few of them have just seen the transfiguration, the rest of the disciples have seen you know, um, storms stilled, they've seen the lame walk, they've seen people raised from the dead, but casting out this demon in this particular case, that might be a little bit too far for this Jesus guy. They, they still, you know, and, they, and they've even recognised that he's God's Messiah but they still haven't quite fully grasped his power. So then the question becomes, who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Because the reality is it doesn't matter who we think Jesus is, we need to believe in the Jesus of the Scriptures. Do you, do you see him as just a, a nice guy, a good, moral, religious, upstanding teacher? I mean, most of us here I'm talking to, you know, would recognise, we know the correct answer. We know that he's God. We know that he's God's Messiah. Most of us have trusted in him as saviour. But I think we do still forget his power. You know, what about when things go wrong? You know, it's, it's all, it's very easy to recognise God's power and God's sovereignty when everything's going our way. But it's when things go wrong that we all of a sudden forget God's power and God's sovereignty. You know, so do we question that? Do we question that he's actually truly on the throne? 
Do we think that he's got things wrong or that we know better? Or do we know that he reigns over all things, that nothing catches him off guard, that he can heal any disease, that he can fix any problem, that he can save our souls, that he can fix any broken relationship, simply if he wills it. And if we believe that, then I I hope our prayer life reflects that, that we pray to a powerful God that can answer our prayers simply if he wills it. We we call out to an all-powerful Messiah when we pray. So let's continue on, and, and as we continue on, we'll see that the disciples, not only they didn't fully understand his power, they, they didn't understand his mission, or, or even their place in his mission. And normally for, for the rest of this passage, there are, there are three more sections. Uh, that would be a good opportunity for me to write three more dot points, uh, maybe some alliteration. Each point needs to start with the same letter to help, help you remember it. But uh, as I went through the rest of this passage, the, they all seem to have the exact same point, which is that the disciples didn't understand. And then in the next section, the disciples didn't understand again. And then in the next section, the disciples didn't understand again. They didn't get, they didn't understand Jesus' power. They didn't understand his need to go to the cross. They didn't understand their need for humility or their place in the kingdom of God. So let's look down at the the end of verse uh, 43. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. So again, Jesus predicts the cross. And he did this in in last week's passage as well. Uh, And and we know from the other Gospels that that Peter's response was to rebuke Jesus, saying, oh no, surely you won't go go to the cross. The concept of a suffering Messiah made no sense. You know, we, we get it now, but only because of hindsight. But, but they believed in a conquering, ruling Messiah. And, and, and they were half right. The, the Messiah will reign and he will rule, but not in the way that they hoped. Not in the let's kick these Romans out kind of way that they had hoped. I mean, I mean what pops into your head when you think of a saviour? Right? Someone who has come to rescue you. You think of someone strong and bold and mighty. Someone who comes to destroy our enemies. Anything that that bothers us, anything that gets in our way, a Messiah will come and fix all of those problems. It'll fix everyone else. But we see Jesus humbling himself, laying aside his attributes to come as a man. And, And pushed aside by the very people that he created nailed to a tree, ridiculed, mocked, spat on, and killed. So that's not a story that that humans would come up with if we wanted to make up a story about this great, mighty saviour. But but that's not how God operates. God came to destroy his enemies by reconciling them to himself, by changing and transforming their hearts, making them, converting them from enemies into friends. And when we preach this message, it makes no sense to people apart from the Spirit working in them. Like, think about it for a moment. You know, in our culture, especially as we become less and less of a, a, um, a Christian-influenced culture, 
you've got this great news to share with your next door neighbor or, or some unsaved family friends that there's this guy that lived 2,000 years ago who went around teaching a lot of good things and then eventually some, some Romans and Jews conspired against him and killed him and nailed him to a tree. And, and that, that's good news for you. you. You can be forgiven by God because of that. And, and by the way, he's, he's no longer dead. He's, he's raised himself up from the dead. You know, we're so used to hearing that. We go, yeah, of course. That, that makes sense, right? Jesus died for our sins, rose again. But, but from the unbeliever's perspective, it's a, it's a pretty strange message. And, and I think that's actually intentional. That's by God's design so that he gets the glory when, when the greatness of the gospel is, is illuminated in our hearts. So uh, 1 Corinthians 1 uh, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, I'd encourage you to, when, when you get home, read through that whole passage of 1 Corinthians 1. That The whole point of it is that God will get the glory when we believe. or All of it. We, we can only boast in Him. Because the power of the message of the cross is not found in you know, its amazing insights, in, in the eloquence of, of the preachers in being revolutionary to our thinking, that we go, ah, that, that just makes so much sense to us. It, it reveals, this message of the cross reveals that God saves people by his spirit, that he's the one that grants us understanding. And, and we see that because the disciples, it says that it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. So that then later on, when the full extent of God's plan is revealed, they would have that aha moment and God would get the glory for revealing it to them. So there won't be a single uh, soul in, in spending all eternity in heaven praising their own intellect, that they were able to figure out the gospel while the next-door neighbor just wasn't quite as smart as I am. And you know, it, it just won't work like that. We'll, we'll give all the glory to God. And, and so that's a, a good question to ask yourself. If, if you've, you've come to believe the gospel, then why did you believe it? Why, did, why do you understand the gospel? Why do you hear that message of the cross and of a man being crucified and raised from the dead and you hear that and you go, that is good news. Why did you go from someone who wasn't convicted of their sins to someone who was convicted of your sins? Were you just you know, slightly more aware of your own sinfulness, slightly more humble or slightly more aware? The, the, the only explanation is that the Spirit of God must have worked in your life to make it happen. And we see that that's very much still needed in the life of the disciples, the Spirit working to humble them, right? So this is a, yeah, a strange and almost frustrating passage. So verse 46, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Right? What a thing to argue about. Which, which one of us is the best? So that was the disciples' problem. They, they didn't understand Jesus' mission, his need for the cross, but they also didn't realise their place in God's mission. See, they, they weren't heroes joining Jesus on his, on his quest to save the world. Right? They, they weren't in on it as well. They weren't co-saviours. They were actually the ones that were in need of rescue. Like, like what, what an insane conversation to be happening. Like, Jesus, and, and we'll see this in, and, uh, as we continue on through Luke, that Jesus is about to head towards Jerusalem. And from then on, and even all throughout this gospel, everything is pointing towards the cross. 
He's making his way to Jerusalem to be killed, to die on a cross, to bear the wrath of God for the very sins that these disciples were currently committing. And he turns to them and they're arguing, well, I'm easily the best. I'm far better than you. Oh, no way. I'm I'm way better than you. You know, I mean, Jesus chose me to go up and see the the transfiguration. You know, I, I don't know exactly what the conversation went like, but but it's absolutely crazy to be talking like that. You know, people, people that struggle with pride are the worst. Unlike me, you know, I, I, would, I would never struggle with pride like these guys. But, but, but really though, I, I kid, but that is a very easy way to read this passage, right? We, we, we look at this passage and go, oh, those stupid disciples, you know, we, we wouldn't be that stupid, right? We, we wouldn't have those type of petty arguments, that if we were in that situation, we would be the exception, right? We, we, we would do it differently. We would do it better. But that's why pride is a really, really dangerous sin. See, some, some sins, just as bad as pride, but some of them are just really obvious to us. You know, when we commit those sins, we just go, yeah, we, we admit our fault, we know that we've sinned, we can see our own flaws, we admit our guilt. But, but pride is a sin that, that blinds us and tells us that we're actually doing okay. And then because of pride, we believe the lies that we tell ourselves. And it's really, really easy to do. It's such an easy sin to fall into because we can always fall back to the easy task of comparing ourselves to others. We can, we can always find someone worse than ourselves and, and make ourselves feel better about ourselves. That's probably what the disciples did. I mean, it'd be pretty easy. You've, you've been living and working together for years, you know, in the mission field. I think they would have been pretty aware of each other's flaws. And, and they might have even been right in their accusations against each other. But, but the problem with pride is that it causes us to focus on others', others flaws in order to minimise our own. Maybe even as I'm preaching this now, you might be thinking, well, I, I know someone who needs to hear this sermon about pride. You know, turn to the person next to you and... No. But if that's what you're thinking, then this sermon is for you. So, see, pride, pride makes no sense when we understand the gospel. It, it can't, this is why there's such a, a massive conflict in this passage. Because pride makes no sense in light of the cross. The cross proves what a desperate state that we're in, that Jesus would have to die in order for us to be saved. So, I mean, you're not really in a position, when we, when we understand that, you're not really in a position to boast before God when he had to die to save us. We're not in a position to demand anything from him. We're not in a position to rest in our own goodness or, or even to compare ourselves to others. You know, if Jesus came to die for all of us, then what good does comparing ourselves to someone else go? And, and even, even as Christians, one, once we've come to understand the gospel, we've been saved by God's grace, that doesn't mean that we're immune to pride. This is still a sin that can uh, very easily creep into the church because we've been saved, we've been transformed by the gospel. You know, it, it's removed certain sins from our life and yet we... We have this tendency to, to boast in that as if that didn't come as a result of the grace of God in our lives. And I think it's, it's worth... Um, you know, set, second set of homework is, is reading through the Proverbs. Uh, it has a lot to say about how dangerous pride can be. Uh, Proverbs 11.2 says, When pride comes, 
then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And it's interesting, the more that we trust in our own abilities, the more we actually seem to fall. The Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honour. And then we even see uh, James and, and Peter uh, both quote from the Proverbs saying, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The pride is the opposite to drawing near to God. Because we need to, uh, because we need to be humble in order to do so. Pride says, I don't need God, I can do things in my own strength. And pride causes us to, to look out for our own interests first. It causes us to exalt our own actions, minimise minimize others, and, and while sim simultaneously we minimise our own sins and focus on other sins. So that's one of the, the telltale signs that pride is in our life, is when we have this continual tendency, when we're convicted, to compare ourselves to others. Go, well, at least I'm not doing what that person does. But I think uh, one of the, the second big signs that we have pride in our lives is is unforgiveness, when we're, we're unable to move on uh, or we're willing to move on from our own mistakes but we just can't seem to get past what someone else has done to us. That's because we, we elevate ourselves or deem ourselves more worthy of forgiveness than those around them. You know, God, God should forgive me but, but not that other person that's, that's done that far worse thing to me. That's, that's different. That's a different category. That's just a sign of pride. There's a, a quote by a pastor called Alastair Begg said, uh, Refusal to forgive reveals that we have minimised our offence against God and we have maximised a brother's offence against us. So what's the key to overcoming this? Right? This, this has to be more than just simply me getting up and saying, Hey guys, be more humble. Job done. Okay, well done. Let's, let's leave. No. Um, that doesn't solve anything. It doesn't change our hearts. This is where we need to look at it through the lens of the gospel. We need to look at what Christ has done. What he had to do in order to forgive you. He had to go to the cross and he was willing to do it. To bear your sins, bear the wrath of God. Just so you could be forgiven of the sins that you've committed this week. Sins that are, that are far worse than any, any, anyone has done to you. So in light of that, perhaps we shouldn't think so highly of ourselves that we can't bring ourselves to forgive others. Uh, that, that's a pretty hard message. This is really easy to preach, right? Really easy to say, hey, forgive one another. You know, but it's so hard to put into practice you know, when the rubber hits the road of, of this type of, of teaching. But it's made possible in light of the gospel. See, if, if my message was simply, be more loving, forgive one another, we wouldn't have the ability to do it. We, we don't have the ability to obey those commands. But when we see the gospel, that that's the very thing that humbles us, allows us to forgive, and it lifts us up and allows us to live as God intended. So let's look at Jesus' response to their uh, petty argument. So verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, 
took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, uh, among you all <coughs> is the one who is great. So in the previous section, they, they didn't understand that, that Jesus' greatness was found in his self-sacrifice, in his humbling of himself to the point of the cross. And, and as a result, they had a skewed view of where they sat in the kingdom and, and what it meant to be great in the kingdom of God. They, they wanted to be the top dogs, you know, the, the ones who, who were chosen by Jesus to be his direct disciples, chosen to go and see the transfiguration, the ones that had the power to heal, the ones that had a great public reputation with all the people that were important. No, nothing's really changed, right? You know, we, we still see that today, uh, e- even in the church. And, and, and I don't just mean the big, you know, flashy televangelists with, you know, big TV ministries. It's just as prominent in our own hearts. We still want credit. We still want praise. We still want accolades. As long as, and especially if it's coming from important people. Even, even just in our unwillingness to, to lower ourselves to the tasks of service that, that go unnoticed. Making ourselves uncomfortable to help the lowest of the low. Stepping into the lives of, of difficult people where it's a lot more work. You know, being a voice for the voiceless. <coughs> and this is why Jesus used the example of receiving a child in his name. In first century Roman culture, uh, children were, were worthless, now, you know, nothing but a burden until they can grow up and become useful members of society. So maybe we're not actually too different after all in our culture. But, but we see in the cross that Jesus' kingdom is upside down to the world, or, or probably more so that the world is upside down to God's ways. True greatness isn't found in in reputation and receiving praise from the elite. It's not about being noticed. It's about the acts of service, esteeming ourselves as lower than those around us. Looking out for other people's interests ahead of our own. Serving people, serving people like children who can't give us praise in return, they can't boost our social standing, but we serve them anyway. And I think we, we perhaps still get things wrong in the church when we talk about the great heroes of the faith. And, and there have been great preachers who have been used by God to bring about revival through the preaching of the gospel. And, and, and there's plenty of biographies written about these great preachers, you know, Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley and Billy Graham. And, and they did do amazing things, and God did amazing things through them. But, but I think the true heroes of the faith were the ones who were behind the scenes, the, one who, the ones who were continually praying while revival was going on, the ones who were serving, the ones who were supporting these ministries. No one knows their names. You know, no biographies are written about them. But they gave up their time. They gave up their lives to serve. These ones will be great in the kingdom. And I think that's the, the same here in this church. You know, the, the service looks to be running smoothly. We have great music. We have hopefully adequate preaching. Um, you know, and that's all important. But it's all the preparation behind the scenes. It's people preparing communion, setting up equipment, 
people cleaning chairs afterwards, packing up. And, and most importantly, those who spent time praying for our church, praying for the service, praying that God's spirit would move. Those who, who asked their neighbour to come along. Those who have helped people in need. And they'll, they'll go unnoticed by our culture. They pro- they might even, you might even go unnoticed here in this church. But that's what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. If you're willing to humble yourself to serve others, then you'll be great in the kingdom. And as we continue on, my final point, they still didn't understand. So look down in verse 49. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So once again, pretty similar problem. A lack of understanding and a lack of humility Their thinking was that all the important work in the kingdom of God was all just what they were doing in their inner circle. It all revolved around them, not around Jesus. Some some other guy was casting out demons, which, uh, given how our passage started, right, when the disciples were unable to cast out a demon, a bit of a slap in the face of them when some other guy that they don't even know, know uses Jesus' name to successfully cast out demons. But this guy, he wasn't part of another group, you know, a cult or a different religion. He was working in Jesus' name. But pride causes us to divide and to have an us versus them kind of mentality. And that's, I guess that's partially true. There is an us and them. There are those who are inside the kingdom and those who are outside the kingdom. Those who are for Jesus and those who are against. But but their problem was incorrectly assuming that this guy wasn't on their side simply because he wasn't part of their group, their inner circle. And so we interestingly have have two similar statements from Jesus uh, here at the end of this passage. He says, for the the one who is not against you is for you. And then in a couple of chapters time in Luke 11.23, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. So they're, they're not actually contradictory statements. They're, they're complementary statements. They, they both fit together to reveal that there is no neutrality with, with Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. You can't be in the middle. You can't be undecided or neutral or passive towards Jesus. And if you say that you haven't made up your mind yet about Jesus, I'm, I'm in the middle, then you've already made up your mind about Jesus. And the disciples' problem is still a problem today in the church. We, we love saying who is in and who is out. And there is, there is a need to do that. Biblically, we are to call out false teachers and false teachings. You know, and groups that are not part of the universal church, those who you know, reject the divinity of Christ, or they reject the resurrection, or they reject that we're saved by God's grace through faith alone. But people aren't saved or condemned on the basis of whether they're in our little group of Christian friends or if they're a part of our local church or our denomination. What matters is whether they call upon Jesus' name. 
So there's a lot in this passage, a lot of difficult stuff that we've, we've worked through. And it's easy to point the finger at the flaws of the disciples, but the scriptures call us to examine ourselves, to look at our own flaws, our own pride. And then Jesus calls us to humble ourselves, to look to him, to look at what he did for us. Because he went to the cross to die for these sins. He went to the cross to die for our pride. And only when we get that, when we understand the gospel, when we believe it, then we can imitate Jesus. And then we can humble ourselves and serve others esteeming them higher than ourselves, and we can put other people's interests before our own. Let's pray that God would give us the strength to do that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were willing to go to the cross for us. Thank you that through your spirit you have given us understanding, that you've humbled us when we were proud, that we, you gave us understanding when we were foolish, that you gave us your righteousness when we were sinful. Lord, we just pray that you would continue to work in us, in us and through us by your Spirit. Continue to give us understanding. Continue to reveal to us the greatness of the Gospel. And Lord, change us. Transform our hearts so that we would esteem others higher than ourselves, that we'd put other people's interests ahead of our own, that we would have the humility to forgive those who have sinned against us, Lord, and that we would do so not begrudgingly but, but joyfully knowing how great it is to know